Well, good morning, beloved. I pray that this morning you are filled with the hope of the resurrection. In just a, a week's time, we'll be celebrating the resurrection. We'll be celebrating the most miraculous event in the history of the universe, when the Son of God, after three days of death in a tomb, rose again in power and in glory. And as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, we also celebrate our resurrection with him because those of us who have faith in him have been raised together with him. And we look forward to his coming when we shall be, we shall see him and be like him. And so I pray that even now your heart is filled with the anticipation and the hope that the resurrection brings, that, that Easter brings to the Christian. And next week, of course, is our sixth church anniversary. Praise God. God has given us grace enough uh, to be around as a family for six years. And uh, he's kept us through a pandemic. He's kept us through ups and downs. He's provided for us in every way. And so we also have great joy in anticipation of celebrating our anniversary. And not only that, but next week, Lord willing, um, the, the, the new church, Congress Heights Community Church, will start its services over in Congress Heights or online. Uh, but they'll be intending to serve Congress Heights in that neighborhood. And so we give God praise for that too, for all these sort of evidences of life and birth and rebirth um, that we get to celebrate in this time. And so I pray that as you gather with us this morning, you are built up uh, and strengthened in the faith that is in Christ. So it's time for us to hear him speak to us. And so let's, let's pray to the Lord and ask him to clear our hearing, that we might hear him well. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and give you thanks for your holy word. And we give you thanks for how you speak to us through your word. Lord, we are reminded yet again that we do not live by bread alone. We live by every word that comes from your mouth. Every word that you have spoken and set down in print, every word that in print continues to speak to us, that's how we live. So we pray, give us life this morning. Give us life this morning through your word. Speak to us and give us ears to hear and do in us, O oh Lord, uh, what you desire. Let your perfect will be done in the shaping of our hearts, in the visions that you give us, in the decisions that come out of this discussion with you and your word. Lord, have your will. Let your way be done, we pray. In Jesus' name. So how many of you want to be rich? <laughs> Seems like a silly question, doesn't it? Obviously, uh, to be wealthy is to be better than poor. That's the way we tend to think about things, isn't it? And it does seem that for most people, doesn't matter how much they have, a little bit more could be better, right? So Jeff Bezos just keeps getting richer, right? Uh, Warren Buffett just keeps getting richer. Folks just keep going about their way, trying to make more, trying to earn more, trying to purchase more, trying to control more. This country, with its capitalistic system, is really premised on the notion of taking some capital, making it into more capital. Uh, the whole game is to, in that sense, multiply, to expand, to grow, to get richer. 
if you can. And so we almost don't even question the question, how many of you would like to be rich? The answer just seems obvious. Well, all of us, it'd be great to be wealthy. But have you ever thought about whether or not there's any danger to being wealthy? Does wealth pose any risk to the wealth holder? Is it always just good to get more? I mean, I'm talking, you know, legally to get more. We know it's wrong to do it sinfully, illegally, but legally through business, through work, through investment. When is enough enough? Is there enough? And if we have a lot, what do we do with it? And does it have anything to do with eternal life, with God's expectations of us? I'm probably like most of you. From the time I was a little boy, I used to imagine treasure hunts. I used to imagine finding pirates' treasure. I used to dig up uh, little holes in my mom's backyard or go out into the little woods behind our house and dig. And if someone wanted to come by and ask, hey, what are you doing? I'm looking for buried treasure. So from the time we were little kids, many of us, we start to sort of fantasize about riches and wealth. And, and a little bit older, when I discovered athletics and thought I was somewhat good in athletics, I, my dream, my aspiration first was to be an NFL running back, then later to be uh, an NBA point guard. Why? Well, then I can stack paper, buy my mama a house, not have to worry about anything. As I grew, my sort of fantasies about wealth grew. My ideas about what money could purchase, could bring, grew. What I didn't have any sense of is how also my entanglements with this world were growing. How the dangers and the threats to my soul were growing. Beloved, riches are deceitful. That's the Bible's teaching. And that's something we need to understand if we're going to follow Jesus the way he calls us to follow him. We must beware of the deceitfulness of riches. And in our text this morning, Mark chapter 10, verses 17 and 31, we see Jesus engaging with a man who wanted to be a disciple. And it turns out that the greatest hindrance to his getting eternal life was his wealth. And we're meant to learn some things from that. And so as we look at Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31, I want us to ask and answer three questions. Number one, where is your treasure? Where is your treasure? Number two, can the rich be saved? Can rich people be saved? And number three, is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth it? We're going to see the answers to those questions in Mark 10, verses 17 to 31. Follow along as I read there. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 
You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So let's think about that first question. Where is your treasure? Our text opens in verse 17 with uh, Jesus starting on his journey. He's going from Judea to Jerusalem. His eyes is fixed on the cross and his mission uh, to die for our sins and to be raised again from the grave. And just as he's getting started, the text says in verse 17, a man ran up to him and knelt before him. Now, Mark here just says, describes him as a man, leaves him rather anonymous. It could be any of us in the way Mark is telling the story. Uh, the other gospel writers tells us that he's young also, and that he's a ruler. And this is where the story gets his name from, the rich young ruler. Now, apparently the man is very sincere. I say that for two reasons. Number one, he runs to Jesus. So he's eager to get there. And number two, he kneels before Jesus. Uh, he comes really in a humble posture, and, and that makes his question seem all the more eager when he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I don't think he's asking an abstract theological question. I don't think he's just out there to have a little conversation over tea. He has run up to Jesus and fell on his knees, and he wants to know, how can I live forever with God in his kingdom? James Edwards writes this. He says, his haste and submission suggest his eagerness to become a disciple. And he asks the most vital question in all of the universe. He asked the central question of existence. What must I do to inherit eternal life? 
He wants to know how he can live forever, eternal, with God in heaven. That's life. That's life as it truly is. He wants to know how he can escape the banality and the brutality of life in a fallen world. What must I do? He asks. This is the question that's at the heart of existence. And interestingly, in Mark's gospel, um, it's a question that's rarely asked. This is the first time it's been asked. So again, James Edwards says, no one who heard Jesus teach in Galilee asked the question of such magnitude, nor indeed have Jesus' own disciples. At last, Jesus is asked the essential question capable of divulging the meaning of his ministry. This question is at the heart of why Jesus came. And this is the most important question to be asked. Now, notice how the Lord answers the man's question, beginning in verse 18. Jesus has a way of poking around in our thinking. And that's what he begins to do with this man in verse 18. The man has asked the right question, the correct question, but does he treasure what he's really asking about. So Jesus gives him three tests here. Number one, there's a subtle test in verse 18, a subtle test in verse 18. The Lord picks up on the fact that the man called him good teacher. And so Jesus then asks this question, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now in saying that, some people, like many of my Muslim friends, would read that in verse 18 and say, see, Jesus draws a distinction between himself and God. He doesn't think that he is God. But this is not Jesus denying that he is God. It's something different. It's actually a test to see if the man understands whether or not Jesus is God. In other words, it's like Jesus is saying to him, do you believe that I am God? since God is the only one who is good. It's a subtle test of the man's theology and the man's Christology. And here's what this first test reveals, that the way to eternal life is to know who Jesus is. John chapter 17, verse 3 says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. If we don't know who Jesus is, we won't know who God is. And if we don't know who Jesus is, then we cannot properly begin to enter the kingdom of heaven. So this man is failing this first test. He doesn't quite yet know who Jesus is. And so Jesus gives him a second test. Now, for all you school kids out there, you know the only thing worse than a test is a retest. That's what Jesus gives him here in verse 19. The Lord says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Jesus is implying that there is no way of entering the kingdom of God unless all of God's moral law is obeyed. And the man seems to understand that. So in verse 20, notice what he says. Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now here's what's interesting to notice about this discussion here. I think many of us, if someone said to us, hey, I've been obeying God's word since I was young, our instinct would be to convince them that actually they're wrong, right? 
that they have sinned, that they are not righteous in God's sight. And that instinct isn't right, but it's just not what Jesus does here. Jesus allows the man to make that claim. And the reason Jesus allows him to make that claim without explaining that no one's going to be justified by the law is because there's actually something bigger that Jesus wants the man to see. To see this, now understand a little bit of background about the law. You'll remember that when Moses received the law from God, he received it on two stone tablets. And, and those two tablets, those two tablets, uh, stone tablets, are, are also sometimes called the two tables of the law. The first table uh, recorded those laws that had to do with man's responsibility to God, the things that we owe God, worship God alone, have no other God before him, honor the Sabbath, keep it holy, and so on. The second table of the law had to do with man's responsibility to man. It's the things that are quoted here in verse 19. Do not murder, do not steal, and so on. Now notice something. All the commandments that Jesus lists in verse 19 come from which table of the law? The second table of the law. And, and this man says, I have kept all of those. But do you notice that in all this discussion, he seems not to ask about the first table of the law? In other words, his, his sense of religious obligation seems to be only on the horizontal, only uh, on the sort of plane of human existence. He's, he's concerned about how he treats other people, but he seems to have lost sight of the first table and how he is to treat God and what he owes God. Now, in this way, he's still failing the first test of not recognizing God and not recognizing that Jesus is God. It reveals that the man has a religion that is sort of centered on other people and centered on kind of human ethics in that way. And here's what I would suggest to you. It is possible to live a religious life and to do right by your neighbor while completely missing God. It's possible to have a religious life and to do right by your neighbor and still not have an adequate focus on God. Now, I've just been burdened in recent weeks for um, conversation that's happening in the Christian world right now about deconstructing one's faith, decolonizing one's faith, and so on. And, and I, I, I get where that comes from. Well, people look up and they realize that, man, it's a whole bunch of stuff that's been attached to Christianity and attached to Jesus and the faith that really don't have a, a biblical basis. I mean, you hear in your ears when Jesus says the tradition of men make the word of God of no effect. And you can see things from evangelicalism or see things from other traditions that have been added and insisted upon that, that actually don't come from the Lord. And, and you wanted to sort of deconstruct and decolonize and remove those things. And that's a, that's a good and right impulse. But, but here's what I want you to be careful of, if that's you. I, I don't want you to be so concerned with loving mercy and doing justice that you forget to walk humbly with God. That the purpose of deconstructing or decolonizing ought to be to get a clearer sight of Jesus. 
the, the purpose of deconstructing and decolonizing isn't really about becoming like this rich young ruler who can say, hey, I've done all these things for my neighbors since, you know, whatever date I became this or that. And at the same time, this God, that's not the purpose. So if, if you're working through those kinds of issues, that kind of thinking and process, I just want you to know, beloved, there's nothing wrong with peeling off the subcultures and the things that attach themselves to the faith. That's necessary. We should be people who are always reforming according to the word of God. But if your reformation doesn't bring you in closer communion with Jesus, you ain't doing it right. The point of deconstruction is reconstruction. Of, of renewing our closeness with Jesus. So we're not like a man who can live a religious life and miss God, who can fulfill the second table of the law and not even think about to ask, the, uh, to ask about the first table of the law. So Jesus gives this man that second test. Now Jesus gives him a third test, and it's a sobering test. We see it there in verse 21. Here's another makeup quiz. Jesus says, looking at him, loved him, and said to him, you like one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. According to Jesus, the only way to enter heaven is to exchange treasures. We have to exchange the treasure of this world. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, poor, in order to have the treasure in heaven, right? The treasure of the world to come, and the treasure of Jesus himself. Come and follow me. So to be really clear here, Jesus did not call this man to give up treasure hunting. He called him to look for treasure in a different place. The Christian life is not a life of no reward and no treasure. It's a life of reward and treasure of a different kind in a different place. Now, Jesus telling the man to sell all, give to the poor, and follow him, that's not a game of spiritual gotcha. Jesus is not just trying to be hard for hardness sake. He's not trying to embarrass the man in public. Nor is he calling the man to make a vow of poverty or to live a life of asceticism. Notice how verse 21 begins. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Love speaks these words in verse 21. It is the nature of, of love to want the best for the one who is loved. Verse 21 then offers to this man love's description of the best life. Verse 21 lovingly offers to free this man from his idols and to lead this man to his true God. Listen, beloved, love's best will call us to give up the earth's best. Love's best will call us to forsake what the world thinks is best. According to Jesus, the man only lacked one thing to receive eternal life. Only a single thing 
If a man could get this one thing, then life with God in God's kingdom would be his forever. But the one thing would cost him everything. This one thing required him to go and to sell all his possessions and to give to the poor. Now, he had many possessions, the text says. So it wasn't any one of those single possessions that was the one thing. It wasn't even necessarily the, the mere act of selling it all and giving it to the poor that was the, the one thing. What is this one thing? Well, this one thing is, is an exchange. Is exchanging how we value everything in this world and counting it as nothing compared to the pearl of great price, compared to Jesus, compared to God. That's the one thing he lacked in each of those tests. That's the one thing he was missing. He called Jesus a good teacher, but didn't recognize that Jesus was God. He said that he obeyed the second table of the law, but seemed to give no thought to the first table of the law. He had all of these possessions, and Jesus was saying to him, trade them for the better possession, the one thing that can never be taken away from you. What this man has not learned is what Jesus teaches in Luke 12, verse 15, that life does not consist, is not made up of the abundance of possessions. Many things does not give life. And his relationship then to his possessions is disordered. His relationships have a, with his possessions has a higher priority than his relationships, his relationship with his God. Now I'm stressing this because some of us are tempted to think that when God calls us to do some hard thing, it is evidence that God does not love us. That's a lie from the evil one. Jesus, the verse says, looked at him and loved him. And while looking at him and loving him, called him to do a hard thing so that he would have the best thing, the one thing that would lead to eternal life. And notice verse 22. When we come to verse 22, we see the deceitfulness of riches, disheartened by the same. He went away sorrowful. Why? For he had great possessions. He chose the earthly wealth that he could count over the eternal wealth that he would never finish counting. He looked love in the face and saw love looking back, and instead of choosing love, he chose money. Instead of choosing God, he chose possessions. That's why he went away disheartened and sorrowful, because all the possessions of this world cannot cure the emptiness of the human soul that's apart from God. When we read these words and watch this man, we come to understand that the world's best and great possessions in this life is simply a kinder, gentler slavery. It's simply a cozier death. 
Here's a man who is rich and powerful while he is young. He's, he's made it. He's the kind of guy that many of us will sort of look around and see all the things he has and say, this is life. What's not life? That's why he came rushing to Jesus asking on his knees, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But he hasn't understood that the path to the kingdom is not the path of wealth or riches or influence and power. He must give up the world's wide way that leads to destruction, and he must find the narrow way that leads to life. See, riches are deceptive. Riches will deceive us into thinking our treasure is on earth and not in heaven. So, beloved, where is your treasure? What do you value most? I mean, right now, quietly, before the Lord, can you say to God, Honestly, legitimately, I treasure you and your son and your kingdom more than anything else in the world. If Jesus were to say to you, go and sell all that you possess as a demonstration that you treasure me above all things, how would you respond? I mean, is there anything right now that sinks in your heart? Just hearing that question. And whatever it is that causes that sinking feeling, well, that's a pointer to the idol that's in our lives. Whatever it is that we attempted to treasure more than God is an idol in our life. It has replaced God and blinded us to who God really is. That's what's happening with this man. That's what happens to billions of people in this world. If you would have eternal life, you must actually come to know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And you must know him more than intellectually. You must know him affectionately. You must love him. You must treasure him above all the things that can be treasured in this world. Is that you? Do you recognize any idols, any sins, that you need to smash and repent of? For Jesus has come that you would have eternal life, that you would live forever with God in his kingdom, but you can only do that if you recognize that he is God, and you recognize that he is the only God, and you recognize that he has given his life as payment for your sins. That's what's happening on the cross when he dies in our place to suffer God's judgment that we should have gotten. And three days later, he is raised from the grave that we too might have eternal life through faith in him. That's the offer the Lord makes you. Do you recognize him? Do you recognize him as the son of God, as God in the flesh, who has atoned for your sins personally and in whom you put your trust and whom you receive as your great treasure? If you do, then life is yours, eternal life. If you don't, then death is yours. And on the day of judgment, an eternal death. Treasure Jesus by putting your faith in him and, and turning away from all idols that he might be your one thing, your one necessary thing for entering the kingdom of God.
Where is your treasure? That brings us to our second question. Can the rich be saved? Can the rich be saved? Verses 23 to 27 shift our attention from Jesus' conversation with the rich man, the young man, to his follow-up conversation with his disciples. So look at me in verse 23. Jesus says there, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And again, again in verse 25, the Lord asks, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus is saying that riches are so deceitful that they are, in fact, an eternal danger to the person who has them. Riches make it harder to enter the kingdom of God, not easier. And the Lord uses that short parable in verse 25 when he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. Now you've been around the Bible for a while. You, you might have had, heard some preachers sort of explain this really interesting image uh, of a whole camel going through the little tiny hole of a sewing needle. And they will explain it by saying there was a, a gate in Jerusalem at the temple um, that was called the eye of the needle. And camels had to enter through that gate. And to enter through that gate, they, the camels had to kind of get on their knees and kind of crawl through the gate. And that was called, you know, entering through the eye of the needle. Yeah, I don't think that's true. I think that's an urban legend. I think Jesus really means it's easier for the camel, a real camel, to go through the eye of a tiny needle than it is for a rich man to enter heaven. He's using hyperbole here. He's using a speech that exaggerates in order to, to make a point. And, and the point really is simple. With only human strength, it is impossible for rich people to get into heaven. That's his point. With only human strength, it is impossible for rich people to get into heaven precisely because of the deceitfulness of riches and the way riches enslave us to this world. Now, Jesus' words about how hard it is for rich people to be saved, that, that can hit our ears kind of funny, can't it? Because it's common for people to think that if you're rich and powerful, then you have God's blessing. Many people tend to think that if anybody is likely to go to heaven, then it must be people who appear to already have heaven's blessings, usually in the form of wealth and influence. Riches equals God's blessing. That's the way the world thinks. And something like this must have been in the mind of the disciples, right? Because notice how they respond to Jesus' teaching in verses 23 and 25. Verse 24, they, the disciples were amazed at his words. And in verse 26, when they hear about the, the camel and the eye of the needle, it says there, they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Now that question only makes sense to us if we think the rich are closer to being saved than the poor. They're like, if rich people can't go to heaven, if it's so hard, it's like a camel going through the eye of a needle, then that's a wrap. Ain't nobody going to get saved. Who, who, who can have eternal life? And this is when we come to see that even in ancient Jerusalem, Something like the American dream 
was affecting the thinking of disciples. Even in ancient Jerusalem, something like a kind of prosperity gospel was shaping their understanding of who's most worthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. The American dream exists among Christian disciples just as well as it exists among secular capitalists. That's why disciples are amazed at Jesus' teaching here. But the kingdom of God does not operate on the principles of men. It operates on an entirely different set of principles and understanding. In verse 23, the disciples were thinking that success in life comes through being rich and influential. And they were perhaps thinking that the goal of life then is to acquire wealth and influence. And maybe they were thinking that's the goal of life even for religious people. So that the difference between religious people and non-religious people is not what they live for, but how they live for it. It's not the goal. The goal was the same, riches and wealth and influence. The non-religious people might do it sinfully, but as religious people, we pursue the same thing, only a little bit more righteously. And if that's all your religion brings you is a little bit of moral reform, then your religion won't get you into the kingdom of heaven. Because Christ has come not to make us just a little bit better, only like the world. Christ has come to make us new creatures, unlike the world, living for something different than the world. Not the trinkets of dollar bills and coins, and not the fading influence of power in this life. That's not our goal at all. And that's what stuns the disciples. When we follow Jesus, we need our minds renewed, don't we? And we need our minds renewed at the most basic level of assumptions about what life is for and what we live for. So Romans chapter 12, renewal of the mind, is not simply, I used to think some bad things, now I think some good things. It is that, but it's not simply that. More fundamentally, Romans chapter 12, renewal of the mind, is bringing our minds into the way, into conformity with the way God thinks. And if God's thoughts are not like our thoughts and God's ways are not like our ways, that means then Romans 12, renewal of the mind, brings us into a way of thinking and a way of living that is entirely unlike the world. And we all need our minds renewed at that deeper, most fundamental level of a changed mind about what life is for and what we live for. We discover that our most fundamental thoughts are wrong and need to be redirected. And that's a major part of Christian discipleship. Mind renewal at the most fundamental level of what is life for. What's its aim? What's its goal? And Jesus is saying here, if it's riches that you live for, then the best you'll ever do is have your riches in this life. Because riches enslave. And the person with them is in danger because of that enslavement. So it begs the question, can the rich be saved? Well, yes but not by their power and not by their riches. Look at verse 27. 
Jesus looked at them and said, he's responding to the question, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. That's how powerful God is. That's how much sway God has. All things are possible with God, including the human impossibility of saving yourself by your riches. Putting a camel through the eye of a needle is possible with God. God can do anything but fail. God can do anything but fail. His arms are not shortened so that he cannot save. Even the rich person ensnared by the deceitfulness of riches. He is, in fact, the only one who can save the rich. That's why it's imperative that the rich humble themselves, forsake their riches, and come to God through faith in Jesus Christ is the only way to be rescued from judgment and to enter eternal life. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says to the young pastor, Timothy, who was serving in a wealthy city, a wealthy church there in Ephesus. He writes this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or proud nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may hold, take hold of that which is truly life. So the rich can be saved, but only if they are humble enough to put their hope in God, not their riches. The kind of riches that, that really reflect God's approval is not the earthly riches of money and wealth. Notice, it is the riches of good works toward others. It's those riches that store up for us a treasure in heaven. And it's that treasure in heaven, having our treasure there, God be our treasure, that gives us confidence that, in fact, we have this life, eternal life, and we lay hold to it in that way. But it's only as we forsake trusting wealth and we begin to trust God, to hope in God through Jesus Christ, that we are saved and given eternal life. That's the riches, that's the wealth that we ought to aspire to. But how do we know that we have it? Well, do you give? Do you give joyfully? Do you give generously and sacrificially to share with others? Do you give with the knowledge that you have a greater treasure, a far greater treasure, in heaven. Do you believe that your real life is that life you have with Jesus? Or do you look around at what you have and say, oh man, this is the life. Well, those who have life, they give this world away. Do you give? Do you share? Do you treasure Jesus?
That's how you know. And beloved, for those of you who are Christians already, members of ARC, Jesus' words here apply to the church today, Christian disciples today, just as, it, as much as it did to disciples in the first century and to rich young rulers. And, and perhaps you're saying, but, but I'm not rich, Pastor T. I, I ain't got no money. I ain't got no power. How does this apply to me? Again, I would ask you if you've ever heard of the American dream. I'm sure you have. So let me ask you a different question. Is the American dream your dream? Is the American dream your dream? Is that what you're living for? Is that what you're pursuing? Do you long for a house? Do you long for cars? Do you want influence? Do you want to be in the room when it happens? Do, do you want your kids to attend the best schools and to go to the best colleges and to have all the advantages? And as you listen to me ask those questions, are you now asking yourself, what's wrong with those things? Well, in one sense, nothing. There's nothing wrong with those things in one sense, but let me ask you this question. Based on this passage of the Bible, what would Jesus have you do with those things? He'd have you give it away, wouldn't he? To sell it, to give to the poor, to come follow him. And Christian, does that sound unreasonable to you? If that sounds unreasonable to you, you haven't yet had your mind renewed on this point. Does it sound too demanding to you? Are you likely to recognize the loss of those possessions quicker than you are to recognize the loss of Jesus' loving face? He looks at you and he loves you. And when he calls you to be free from the snare and the trap of the love of riches, that is love speaking to you and to me, the best life. That is love wanting the best for us. So, the American dream blinds us. The American dream is simply worldliness. The American dream is capitalism's mythology to replace the Bible's Christianity. Don't fall for it. The offer of treasure in heaven ought to the, to the disciple be more appealing than the offer of treasure on earth. The treasure this man can see holds more value to him than the treasure he can see. And the treasure he can't see is Jesus and the Father and the Spirit and the eternal kingdom. <laughs> but he walked away from Jesus' loving look because he remembered what he had at home. I think the man felt love, but he didn't feel freed because his riches had trapped him. Christian disciple, is that you?
would you look into the love of Jesus' face and walk off to the possessions of this world? Please don't. Give it up a hundred times over. That's the Lord's call upon us. Which brings us to our final question. Is Jesus worth it? We see the call to discipleship and we see the cost of discipleship here. In verse 28, Peter begins to sort of get things, right? And Peter says in verse 28, see, we have left everything and followed you. And they literally had. They had literally left the fishing boats, the fishing nets, left their fathers in the boats, left their whole way of life in order to follow Jesus. And, and Peter is wondering, so, so what's there for us? Jesus explains in verses 29 to 31. Look here with me. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. For many who are first will be last, and the last first. Beloved, wealth and riches will deceive us into thinking that following Jesus is not worth it. But notice what Jesus says. No one who leaves this world's possessions, family, job, house, kids, and so on, no one who leaves this world's possessions to follow him will lose in the trade. Everyone who leaves this world's possessions to follow Jesus will gain 100 times everything they left, and then on top of that, eternal life. See, if we, notice this phrase, live for his sake, Jesus' sake, and the gospel, if that's where our life is aimed at instead of riches, we aim our lives at living for Jesus and living for the advance of the gospel. If that's what we're doing, we cannot lose. We do not lose. Notice that verse 30 says this. says, we will receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mother, mothers and children and lands. Now, this, of course, is not a reference to earthly possessions. Prosperity preachers might suggest that. But what sense would that make? What sense would it make for Jesus to call a man to give up all his earthly possessions and then promise him earthly possessions? Now, that's not what this is about. This is about the spiritual blessings of life in Christ. He says, now in this time, we have 100 times the number of houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, lands, etc., that we lack. How is that possible? Well, it's possible in the church. This is fulfilled in the church, in the local church, in the family of God. It's fulfilled in the ecclesia, not in your personal financial portfolio. And this 100-fold return in the church it's better than anything you and I give up to follow Jesus. It is. But there are other things we receive too. Notice now, now in this life, we also receive persecutions. People will mistreat us for following Jesus. 
We will have the entire family of God, yes. But as a family, we will suffer for the sake of the name. And once again, prosperity teachers deny this. They say, if you're suffering, then something's gone wrong with your faith. But Jesus says, now in this time, our persecution is as certain as our 100-fold blessing. It's a reminder, as one writer puts it, that Christian existence is not utopia, and Christian faith is not an insurance policy against adversity and hardship. Jesus promises us persecutions, but here's the wonderful thing about the way God does things. Do you remember in the Beatitudes when Jesus says, blessed are we when they persecute us? Do you remember what he says? For great is your reward in heaven. Even our persecutions multiply our reward in glory. Even our suffering serves us. Now in this life, and then in the age to come, we receive eternal life. So what we must begin to understand well, we must understand again, as if for the first time, is life does not work the way we think. That's what's meant by verse 31. But many who are first will be last, and the last first to give up everything to follow Jesus will put us in last place in some earthly sense. But in the kingdom of God, the last, the least, are first and exalted. And all those who die with the most toys die without Jesus. They will be last. And so the question really becomes, would we rather be in first place for a few years on earth and then eternally in last place? Or would we rather be in last place for a few years on earth and eternally made to be first in the kingdom of God? It's not a difficult decision, is it? Give up everything on earth and gain everything now in the church as well as later in eternal life. That's what Jesus offers us. That's the bargain that breaks the deception of riches. We must put our happiness and our treasure in heaven beyond the reach of our enemies. If we would have eternal life, Jesus must be our treasure. And he must be our great joy. And beloved, if we're Christians, let us live that way to root our joy in Christ and in his kingdom. And if you are not a Christian, receive the offer of eternal life, the offer of eternal joy by turning away from all things and putting your hope in Jesus as your Savior. Even if you're rich, you can be saved by the power of God. It's the same power that saves the poor. But we all come to heaven one way, through Jesus, who is the gate, through the Savior who atones for our sins, through the resurrection of the one who rose from the grave and is coming again for his church. Don't be deceived by riches. Don't be taken in by wealth. Instead, 
make Jesus your treasure, and know that he's worth it. Let's pray together. Father, indeed, we pray that you would give us hearts set on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ. Hearts, O oh Lord, that treasure him and love him above all things. And we pray that you would give us such faith and such hope that we would indeed turn away from all things in order that we might turn to you. Let us do that, do that in the faith that teaches us that such a turn is for our eternal happiness. Grant us grace to do that, we pray in Jesus' name.